Welcome to Monday Morning Conversations with Nancy and Dan, where conversations build community. Our Monday Morning Conversations are meant to create a safe space where respectful dialogue is encouraged. Our intention is to promote understanding by listening when having difficult conversations. We hope to offer you resources as you travel your personal journey. We lost our daughter Leah in a car accident in November of 2000. And it's the reason why we do these shows, to bring the message that grief in its various forms can be transformational. And our passion is changing the conversation around grief, helping people we find and talk to to find meaning, purpose, and joy again so that they can fully participate in their lives. Join us today with our conversation and help us build community. Today's topic is grief and business negotiation. We have on the line with us our good friend Dave Baldwin. Dave Baldwin is a business consultant on a mission to eliminate passive uh, aggression in communities and workplaces. Dave enjoys showing people how to look at data from new angles to simplify complex decisions. And before we get into our topic, I want to share a startling statistic with you from the Grief Recovery Institute. The impact of unrecognized grief on the workplace exceeds $16 billion a year. That's billion with a B. Every time I hear that, I just can't really believe that it's that much. And it's attributed to the inability to concentrate, poor decision making, and safety. Dan is going to play the song right now. Enjoy the song. Right now, uh, I'd like to uh, play a song that has uh, always been special to me. It's by Bachman Turner Overdrive called Blue Collar. Oh, <laughs> 
we're back. So let's remember that everyone contributes, whether it's on a job site, in a snow removal capacity, in helping in our hospitals, in all of the things that go into making our lives worth living. I think uh, the, the point of that uh, was, and it's the financial impact of grief on the workplace that we want to talk about. It's staggering, and this type of grief is now being recognized uh, throughout our community and throughout the nation. And when we talk about uh, grief in the workplace, you know, there's several scenarios to consider. Uh, death of a coworker, or a coworker experiencing a loss of any kind. It could be a loss of a relationship or a divorce. Health issues. Or, yeah, it could be a debilitating injury that may have happened on or off the job. And uh, all of these situations can affect our ability to do our work and can have an impact on our careers. So let's talk about uh, some of the things that we experience when grief happens in the workplace. And um, let me ask you, Dave, uh, first of all, can you hear me okay? I can hear you, yes. And thank you, Dan and Nancy, for having me today. Not a problem. But what made you choose grief in the workplace and the associated, uh, the associated uh, emotions uh, as an area of interest, Dave? Well, part of what my focus is, part of my personal mission, as, as Nancy shared in the beginning, I, I've, I've noticed how much passive aggression there is in what people call toxic workplace culture. It's a term you hear a lot these days. And I also, it, it really bothers me when I see people being taken advantage of at work. And in particular, there's a lot of people with good hearts that are hard workers, that are brilliant, that are really smart, that are dedicated, that are loyal. And unfortunately, there's there's a side effect when you introduce emotions, when you introduce grief, when you introduce all these different stressors. People can find themselves in an emotionally compromised state, specifically at work. And you can imagine when you've got all these different individuals interacting, some with more authority than others, some with more responsibility than others, and there's the financial weight of it that is having to be shared and carried by everybody, the the, the, the impact of emotions on the day-to-day decision-making process can have a, a massive financial impact on the businesses, illustrated by the statistic that Nancy shared in the beginning. But part of what made me choose this path to answer to your question, I mean, I have a passion for numbers. I've always loved kind of just delving into numbers and looking at objective data. But I really feel like the more we can get, we can learn that important skill of detaching from emotions and making decisions based on what we know to be objectively true in the moment, then the more we can make good decisions, even when we feel like making bad decisions. And that's that's the unfortunate reality, I think, of the human experience is that we could come up with countless examples of how it's easy to know what there is to do, but in the moment of truth when it comes time to actually carry out the decision a lot of times we find ourselves in these situations where our emotions pull in the opposite direction and and where we feel compelled by an unseen force to act against our own self-interest so you kind of have to look at that at a collective level and an individual level when you have people interacting in a workplace and I, i look at it as one of the most important challenges of our time for people to learn how to make good decisions moment to moment, regardless of what emotions are going on. And that really relies on objectivity. It relies on a disciplined view of the numbers and it it relies on knowing what the logical next move is. And that's unfortunately something that's not taught in school. So that's, that's part of what makes me excited to get up every day and, and 
carry this forward. Yeah, you, you make some really great points. And I'm wondering, how can someone become aware of those, those emotions that affect them on a daily basis at work? One of the most obvious symbols that I would recommend starting with as far as becoming aware of emotions is recognizing the link between your physical body and your emotional state. I mean, for me, one one telltale sign that I've come to learn to recognize is if I have any degree of anger, even low-level anger, I begin to feel my muscles tensing up in my chest and in my forearms, and I can sometimes notice that if my forehead is crunching there is a degree of fear and that can sometimes show up as overly excessively intense concentration i the one of the time things that i can do is i'm prone to going down rabbit holes and over analyzing details that don't really matter that much in the situation and, and i've come to recognize over time that that's a symptom of fear that a lot of times that's because i'm avoiding something a lot more important and there's some element of fear in play and then sadness a lot of times can show up just as listlessness it can show up as numbness i think each individual kind of has to recognize how do the emotions show up for you and i think it really isn't the same for any in individual person but i think part of the strategy i have also is is I, I make a point of writing out a plan for myself each day and i notice it, it becomes easier to notice the emotions interfering with that plan when the plan is written down because let's say I write six things on my plan and I get to item number four and I start feeling the temptation to go do something that's not item number four on the list. Usually there's an emotional factor and sometimes emotion also shows up as confusion. If, you, if, if people feel confused, a lot of times the tendency is to think more or look for more information or try to interact with confusion on a purely logical level. But a lot of times confusion is just a mask that's worn by different emotions. It could be anger, it could be fear, it could be jealousy, it could be sadness, it could be grief, it could be any number of different things. But so, so I think the answer to your question, we could spend the rest of this whole segment talking about just how to recognize emotion, but I think it really just begins with the decision to become aware of emotion and not try to necessarily do anything about it until you recognize what the emotion is first. Yeah, I think uh, you made a good point, too. Uh, everybody's grief is unique. And whatever it is that is holding you back, you know, whether it is one of the things that you mentioned, and you, you mentioned logic, when you're faced with grief, a lot of times it isn't really a matter of logic. You're, it's all of those emotions and things that are alive in your body that is heart-centered and not something is logic in your in your head um, and last week we mentioned uh, procrastination people just putting things off because they don't want to deal with it and I think that is a factor uh, I know that we tend to do the jobs that we like to do and put off the things that we're not happy with you know all great points Dave yeah and as you were as you were talking Dave I had this picture in my head of Everybody, especially in a large corporate setting, everybody in that office at a different, maybe at a different level of stress and grief or emotional distress. And so everybody is coming from a different place. Everybody's coming from a different scenario, a different experience. And so when you have that in the workplace, that can be maybe a little overwhelming. What are your thoughts on that, Dave? 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point because part of the, the, the problem when you have a group of people is that if one person is, if you're coming to work every day and you're feeling a heavy amount of stress on your shoulders and you're just feeling at the point of burnout, it's easy to forget that you might have a whole group of coworkers that feel the same way or possibly that feel they're even feeling worse than you are. And I think that empathy is a difficult thing when you're feeling drained and when you're feeling burned out. It's That's the most difficult time to feel empathy for other people. And I think in those situations, when you've got just a, a shared, a, a heavy load of stress and a lot of emotions going on with everybody in the office, I think the, the most important practice is to learn how to be conscious of how the the emotions hit you with when somebody interacts with you in a given way and in particular to really think about your view of that person the, the emotions that you feel based on whatever somebody said whatever somebody did might not have anything to do with what they intended it might not necessarily have because we have a tendency to project our own thinking onto other people particularly during really high moments of stress and i might think like somebody might throw off a comment and I might be prone to just go off the rails if I'm under a high level of stress. I might have a tendency to just go over the top or just overreact because of everything else that's going on in my life. And I might forget that the other people in the office don't know what's going on in my life. They don't know about all those details and I don't know what's going on in their lives. And so I, so I think the, the, the real takeaway here is if somebody interacts with me in a way that brings up emotion the real challenge is to be able to step back and say okay what just happened here what did they say what, what did they do if i were to look at it like a reporter and look at it on the level of objective data and and you know separate the emotion and separate the reaction separate whatever thoughts that i have of my own about the situation but just say factually what happened and it could be okay, Bob sent an email and, and it said X, Y, Z, and that's that's the fact. How I felt about it might be any number of different things, but if I separate out those facts and, if possible, put a time delay, as much of a delay in before responding or doing anything, and just kind of pull it apart and say, okay, is what? let me make a conscious decision about how to interact with this situation. Those are all really great points, Dave, and... As I'm listening to these scenarios, uh, I, I, I'm wondering what's the first step to start to untangle some of those um, emotional enmeshments? One key practice that I have for myself and I, I strongly recommend is the practice of writing. And that could be journaling. It could be taking notes. One of the ways that I do it, I have a, a large collection of notepad files on my computer that whenever I'm talking to somebody on the phone, I, I've gotten into the habit of writing down what was said, what was agreed upon. And the really great thing about writing, I think people uh, who haven't done much of it don't recognize as much as it actually forces you to slow down your thinking. Uh, one of the things where emotions can really act against us is, is if we react in the moment impulsively. And the act of sitting down and, and writing something down can actually just bring uh, the a more objective view and it can help to calm down and separate emotions and then sometimes i found that there's kind of an effect there's a psychological effect when i look at something i've written down on paper i think about it differently and here's a real practical application of, of writing specifically for work situations 
is let's let's say you're either angry, you're fearful, or you're just really unhappy with the situation, and you're thinking about you, you've got some things you want to say to somebody. I recommend just write down what you would want to say to them in a notepad file and don't say it to anybody. And that can actually just just taking that, you know, 15 to 20 minutes, especially for a very emotionally charged situation to just write that out. And then also think about what your options are in any given situation. Say, I could do A, I could do B, I could do C. Write down what those options are. And I'll tell you, sometimes just sitting down and, and taking the time to, to think and, and write things out can can make a world of difference in terms of being able to pull apart the emotions in, in a situation and begin to really see things in a more useful way. doesn't solve the entire problem, but I think it's a really good starting point. Yeah, yeah I think you're, you're right because I know when I do writing, especially when I'm doing a regular writing practice, I'm able to access things that... I'm not that I can't a- access if I'm just thinking about them. Thinking about what you said about taking time, that's great, uh, especially if you're dealing with an email or you know an instant message that comes in. Sometimes the that time factor is is a crucial part of your response and being thoughtful and aware of how our responses can influence an outcome. Well, the other thing that I'm reminded of is, I I love that you said slow down, because when we slow down, that's when we're able to get deeper, more deeply in touch with what we're feeling, with what the situation is, and listen to a possible solution. However, corporate America does not always like slowing down. There's always an attitude of let's hurry up and get this done. Let's um, speed things up. Let's go fast. So Dave, how would you speak to that? How can you slow down and yet still give your employer and and your team what it needs? I think that's a really great point because part of the reality we have to deal with is we don't always have the luxury of taking time to think about things, which I think is what you're speaking to, especially when you're in a particularly fast-paced job and a lot happens quickly. So part of what we have, I mean, and it's, it's interesting, you know, I'll hear sometimes people will say if you're, if you're grieving or if you're dealing with an emotionally stressful situation, don't make decisions while you're in that state of mind. And I always think, well, that's great if you have the luxury of not making decisions, but sometimes you don't have a choice. Sometimes you just have to make a decision in the moment, regardless of what emotional state you're in. And I think that's that's really what we're up against in, a lot of times in, in the workplace. So my general recommendation as far as how, do, how does someone interact with that, I think a lot of times you, you just have to think of this as how do you do your homework in advance how can you make use of those good states of mind when you have them how do you, how do you make think ahead in terms of what are the difficult situations you're going to encounter and pre-plan your your moves pre-plan what you're going to say that might include writing down what your responses are that might include deciding what your your other options are in terms of if you if you have to get out of a situation it might include thinking about how you could possibly buy yourself a little bit of a time if, if a little bit of a delay might make you some make a difference. There's there's a whole different host of options that you have available if you think about those things ahead of time. 
Uh, and so let's say, for example, you're, you've got a tense situation at work and you know that you have a meeting on Thursday and there's a possibility that some things are going to come up in that meeting that are going to be tense. So part of what you might want to do is, is write down your own agenda for the meeting uh, or, or at least a response plan to say, okay, if coworker X brings up this point, here's what I'm going to share, here's what I'm not going to share. If they push the issue, here's what I'm going to do. Essentially, just kind of look at if X happens, my response, my desired response will be Y. Now, even so, even if you write all those different things down, the real hard part is really assessing for yourself. If I say I'm going to do something in the moment, you have to be self-aware enough to realize, am I actually going to have the emotional wherewithal to carry out what I said? And, that, and that's a lifelong practice. That, that's not a once-and-done thing. But I think even, it, it's worthwhile just to write down, what do you think the right move is to make in a given situation? And then notice when that situation arises, what move do you actually make? What decision do you actually make? What what words come out of your mouth, uh, and how is that different from what you said you were going to do before? Because none of us practices that perfectly. I mean, none of us can necessarily predict how we're going to feel when the moment actually arises. But what we can do is we can take stock of what happened afterwards. We can notice what emotions came up. We can notice what situational factors came up that we didn't anticipate. And then we can lather, rinse, and repeat the next time around. But I think that when we do that, when we sit down and we do that strategizing and that pre-planning, and we think about how do we want to respond when these situations come up, even if we don't succeed in responding the way that we want to, there, there's still uh, a lesson that we can learn by having written down the experience, by having documented what happened, and by having become a little bit more aware of the emotions that came up during the process. What I like about that is you have a plan for it, and yet when you're actually in the situation, if you're present to what's happening, at least in, in, in my experience, then I'm able to access whatever it is I need for my plan that is going to mo be most beneficial in that particular s circumstance. And so often, presence is what is uh, something that, that we're not cognizant of. It, at least I wasn't before I, <clears throat> before I understood the power of presence. I, was, I, would, I would try to control the outcome of things without, without having all the information that I needed to get the outcome that, that I wanted because I hadn't pre-planned it like, like you su suggested. So I, I think both pre-planning and presence can really help us. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about business negotiation and managing emotions and how grief might come into that. We started talking about that a little bit um, at the top of the show, Talk to us about negotiations and, and grief and emotions. Yeah, I mean, negotiation can be a very emotional experience, particularly if you've got a lot riding on something that you're negotiating. For example, let's say if you're negotiating a job offer or you're going in for an interview and it's uncertain as to whether that interview is going to lead to an offer. At every stage of the conversation, you're always negotiating something. And if emotions are running hot or if you're going through grief if you've recently suffered a loss what can happen is if you're negotiating while you're in an emotionally compromised state 
the unfortunate thing is that sometimes if you're dealing with someone who's even a little bit unscrupulous who picks up on your emotionally uncompromised state, they're going to look at it as an opportunity to take advantage of you. And what happens is that people learn how to push your buttons. They learn how to, how to make you either feel afraid, make you angry, or they learn how to basically operate your instincts like levers to get you to do what they want them to do. And if you aren't self-aware of what these emotional responses are, if you don't know what your buttons are that people can push, then you're going to be at that much more of a disadvantage at the negotiating table. So what I generally recommend, it kind of goes back to some of the practices we talked about earlier, but I, I really think that if you're negotiating for anything, there's three things you've got to be aware of. You've got to be aware of what your limitations and constraints are. At what point will you get up and walk away from the negotiating table? Uh, what are your bottom line non-negotiables? You need to know what value you bring to the table, and you've got to know what, what's valuable in, in the deal for you. And then you've also got to, to be aware of what your options are. Like what, what other options do you have should negotiation fail? And those are all very objective, non-emotional factors. And I think that if you're really clear and you've written down what, what your options are, what your limitations are, what's valuable about the opportunity, and, and you've thought objectively through that, the emotions are going to come up. I mean, it doesn't, when you, when you learn to think objectively, it doesn't take the emotion away. But what can begin to happen instead is that you begin to see clearly what the what the right decision is, and you can then recognize, hey, my the, I know that the right decision is this, but my emotions are pulling really strongly to do the opposite. And so I think the more you make a consistent practice of that, the more you'll find yourself in those situations where you're negotiating with somebody. And you can recognize in the moment when your emotions are pulling you to act against your own self-interest. And if you can hold the line with your own emotions, then you can hold the line with somebody else at the negotiating table. Because ultimately, it, if it seems like you're negotiating another against another person, in a lot of cases, you're actually negotiating against your own emotions and your own instincts. Uh, because the instincts were, were hardwired into us to protect us and keep us alive. But as we all know, and as, as I know that can come up in a lot of times with grief, the, the survival instinct can throw a lot of false alarms and can generate fear when there's nothing to be afraid of, and that can lead us to make bad decisions. So that's, I know that's a mouthful, but that's really a few of the things that we have to take into consideration if we want to be able to negotiate effectively, regardless of what emotions we're feeling in the moment. So as I'm listening to you share that, I'm wondering, and I know it probably depends on the nego negotiation, is there ever a time when uh, it, it's um, helpful or acceptable to share why you're going through a particular emotion with whoever you're negotiating with? I, I think there's always a right way to do it. Obviously, in a business environment where we're, there are certain standards of professionalism, there's, I think it becomes inappropriate to overshare personal details that are irrelevant to the situation. But I think most, in most cases, it's fine that if you're talking to somebody about some kind of business deal to start, then start off the conversation by saying something as simple as, hey, by the way, I just, uh, I, I'm not in a great state of mind because of something I've got going on personally. And in case I come across in, in, in a certain way that it has nothing to do with you or just kind of sharing just enough to help them understand that to, to not misinterpret nonverbal signals because part of what you could can be dangerous about not sharing enough 
is that, you know, let, let's say you've just gone through a loss. You've just lost a family member in the last week and you don't tell that person. You may not be aware of your own tendency to possibly either be short or be come across as emotionally distant. And they might interpret that as hostility or arrogance or any number of things that it's not versus if you if you put on the table that, OK, I've, I've just gone through something in my life and I'm not in the best state of mind. That gives the other person an opportunity to say, oh, OK, uh, this let me take that into account and, and be aware of that. I mean, obviously, it depends who you're talking to. It depends on their level of self-awareness. But I think some level of sharing is is a, a good thing from that standpoint. Yeah, I think that's a good way to approach it. And certainly those times when um, worker, co-workers will know that that's something happened. For instance, in the case, in our case, everyone knew that Leah died. Everyone pitched in and that helped us to be able to get what we needed once we did return to work because everyone was... Um, really helpful in giving a, either um, allowing us to talk with them or not talk talk with them and I'm wondering if in your experience that uh, if all work cultures are like that or all office cultures are, are, are like that would they be able to pitch in and help out a co-worker a colleague who went through the experience of a loved one dying, uh, especially a, a child or a, a parent? Well, it's hard for me to say much of anything about all office cultures at, at that broad of a generalization, but I, I would say I would divide office cultures into, into two major camps. If I were to just say, if I were to draw an arbitrary line somewhere and say you've got a healthy team and an unhealthy team, if it's what a lot of people would call a toxic workplace culture, in general, if you're in that kind of a workplace, my strategy would be to share as little as possible because, unfortunately, if there's any kind of backstabbing or a lack of trust or questions about people's motives or suspicion or anything like that, uh, anything, even sharing about a personal loss, uh, could either be used against you or somebody might interpret that as you're just playing a manipulation game. And when, it, when there's no trust involved, that there's really almost no possibility of collaboration. And I think in those situations, a lot of times all you can do is look for another job. But in, in a healthy environment, even even a moderately healthy environment, I mean, no workplace is perfect. People have flaws. You know, there, there's always going to be stuff going on. I think if, if you have any level of empathy in a workplace and, and people have any desire to really work with each other as people and, and not just treat each other like machines producing output i think that yeah generally most workplaces if you share something along those lines people will at least make some level of effort to help you get supported around your what getting your needs met to whatever extent is is reasonable to expect from a, from a colleague or a coworker. and i think the only other factor to be mindful of and, and this would really relate to anybody not even just a coworker necessarily but anyone in your life is just kind of be mindful of who are the people that are likely to try to jump right into offering solutions and, to, and and trying to help in ways that are not helpful. And I think in some of those cases, there's people who might be well-meaning or coworkers who might be well-meaning that I still might not share with anyway because uh, they may just lack the 
the level of maturity and self-awareness to really contribute in a meaningful way. And I think all you can do is to kind of show them some empathy by just you know, not not getting them overly involved in something that's not going to serve either you or them. Yeah, well said. Um, and I think you, know, you mentioned there's really many different scenarios here. We've been talking about negotiations, which could be in a you know business-oriented me talking to a client, me talking to my boss, but there is also the other things that you can't be prepared for, you know, that uh, may, what we like to call the little griefs, the uh, flat tire on the way to the office, the things that upset your normal business day that can contribute, or it could be, um, you know, something that for example, it happened to us during our corporate jobs where there was a job site accident. And their pre-planning and having a, um, knowing what to do in the case of an emergency can come in as extremely helpful to saving a life or you know, being prepared when an ambulance you know, happens to show up. Uh, but there's... You know, the, you, you, we're trying to cover a, a lot of material uh, about grief in business, and I'm just aware of so many different aspects that uh, this conversation can can take. Yeah, yeah, we can go in many different down many different roads. We haven't talked too much about how a business can help the person who's grieving, no matter what what the, the grief is, whether it's the death of a loved one or whether it is a job site a- accident, which um, involves a lot more people than the person th- that had the accident or their I- immediate manager. So, so um, Dave, do you have any thoughts about how the how the managers or those who, who, who have the, um, the ability to change the culture could help to make the environment better for their employees? Yeah, and, and I think there's a lot that can be done there. I think it's particularly difficult in some ways for a manager because you're in a situation where anytime you're talking to a direct report or somebody who you're their boss, they're going to be very guarded and filtered in what they say and may or may not feel like it's it's a great idea to tell you too much because, if, you know, for obvious reasons, if I, if I tell my boss something and, and wish I hadn't said that, that could have irreversible career consequences for me. And so I think if you are the, the supervisor, you need to be aware of how that dynamic is going to affect someone's ability to communicate with you. And so one of the things that if, if I were if I were in a situation that I had uh, when, when I've been in situations where I had complex things I wanted to talk to my boss about, I, I typically recommend that people have those conversations with disinterested parties before they talk to uh, a boss at a company or even coworkers. And disinterested is not what a lot of people think it means. It doesn't mean you're uninterested in something. It means you're not, you don't have a financial interest in the outcome of a situation. So it could be a friend who doesn't work at the company 
or somebody else who otherwise is, is not personally affected by what happens next. So from a boss's standpoint, uh, part of what you have to recognize is that depending on the level of trust you currently have in your company, the people who report to you might not feel like they can trust you enough to tell you what's really going on. Like you just may not have that level of trust yet at this point in time. And that's fine if you don't, that that's just all, all there is to do is recognize that and then ask the question, okay, if, if this person does not feel safe to have this conversation with me as their boss, who else might they be able to talk to? And could I find some way to involve a third party mediator or, could I possibly, and this is where you kind of have to look at all the different people in your company and maybe encourage other people to help each other in different ways. But, you know, the question of how do you shift the culture to a higher level of trust, obviously that's a, a very long, multifaceted conversation, but I think it all begins with transparency, begins with accountability, and it begins with being honest yourself. So I think part of what you kind of have to do for, for a, a boss who wants to change the culture, what you have to do is start by looking within and saying, okay, um, in what way am I helping to shape this culture and what, what, what am I modeling for my team? And I think sometimes the first, the first person you can change is yourself and look at your own habits, your own behavior. And, and just to kind of give a, a practical example there, it might be that if, if you have the habit of playing your cards close to your chest, like I know is, is a common thing with a lot of people in leadership positions, in other words, just being reticent to share information and keep people on a need-to-know basis, is there a fear uh, or, a, or an unhealthy desire for control. I mean, that that's only just one specific example. There's plenty of other. You know, you might have uh, some other supervisors might have more of a tendency to caretake or be overly concerned about their their direct reports, personal lives, and ask too many prying questions or try to go too far to help people in ways they didn't ask for. And if, if you have that kind of dynamic going on, people may be guarded in a different way. So if those are just a kind of couple of counter examples, but if you just look at the question of what, what am I doing to contribute to this culture and how can I begin to model something different? Uh, I think people will take notice when behavior changes and the change becomes consistent. And especially when you take accountability for past mistakes and demonstrate a commitment to moving forward differently. Yeah. I, I think that's, that personal responsibility element is crucial, you know, to wherever we're headed with this uh, uh, addressing of grief in the workplace. Obviously, if a workplace already has programs um, and offers benefits, making sure that there are ways that someone can get the help that they need is always a preferred way, but Ultimately, yes, you're right. If you want to affect change within the organization, it's the personal responsibility that uh, is at the forefront of change. There are also being, as a coworker, being available to someone who has gone through a rough patch, uh, letting them know that you are uh, there to to help and um, and then to follow through with that offer always an, another hand in a difficult situation that can be of assistance is is appreciated. Right, and, and also choosing someone that you know will keep your situation confidential if 
that's the way that you want it to be. When you're in those situations, you never know how you're going to react or, or how you're going to feel. And learning how to navigate your own grief in a difficult situation is um, a huge lesson. And I want to switch gears just a little bit. We've been talking about, I guess, not not exclusively larger companies, but I want to talk a little bit about the solopreneur or the entrepreneur who has a small business. And I think grief can affect those people in a different way. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that, Dave. I mean, for in a lot of ways, the, the, the situation is identical with the owner of a business, but a couple of the key factors that, that change when you own a business versus if you're a manager or an executive in a, in a company is that there's a sense of personal identity that attaches to the business because it's your baby, you built it from the ground up, and if you're an employee of a small business and your boss is the owner of the business, you have to recognize some of the emotions that can come up around pride especially, I mean, and just to name a couple examples, let's say that the company has been around 20 years and you're working with the, the son of the founder uh, who it's, it's let's say, the, 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 the mother and father built it from the ground up and the son inherited the business and took it over. Well, now it, it's personal to them. It's, it's now tied to their family. It's part of their heritage. And, and so that's going to affect the way they interact with you. And grief can show up, kind of to go back to Dan's example about uh, the low-lying, low-level grief, like a, a flat tire, not necessarily a massive trauma, but those day-to-day things that can still stir up feelings of grief. Well, in a small business, particularly when you have uh, a solo owner, things change over time. Things change in every business. I mean, it's it's you can always look back and say, this, this isn't the business that it was five years ago. But you can have, a lot of times, the owner of a business may have had particular visions and things they wanted to do that never came to be and they're they're dealing with a level of grief around that and that you also have to be aware that a lot that that when the manager in a company is making decisions they're making decisions with somebody else's money they're accountable for it but they're stewards they're not owners but when you're dealing with the owner of a business it's their personal money they're writing a check out of their personal bank account and there's emotions and there's pride that's tied to that so an example of how this can show up in, in a negotiation, specifically in the situation, Nancy, that you just asked about, let's say uh, you work for a small business, your boss is the owner, and you're, you're unhappy that you're doing too much and not being paid enough and you're, trying, you're asking for a raise. One of the things to be aware of is that your boss might not be getting paid at all because that happens in small business. And so they might be you know, they might be living on their retirement and, you know, working long days just to keep the company afloat so that you can get paid. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be paid more for your efforts if you're putting in too much, but is it, it just the point is you need to be aware of what emotions might be running through the, the owner's mind when you're having those conversations. So I, I think the key element, the, the key difference between uh, a steward versus an owner is just the, the the way that the sense of identity affects their emotions. There can be, I guess, a sense of like a more of a feeling of entitlement. There can be feelings of anger, and then there there can also can just be feelings of resentment if they feel like I, I built this company from the ground up and I just I do all these things to make these opportunities available for you, 
and you know i feel like you're not grateful for all these things i created that's i mean that comes up all the time in small businesses but those are just a couple of of different factors and obviously that's a generalization depends on the specific type of business but those are a couple of things i've seen you bring up some good things and one of the things that came to mind with that is it's putting a lot of um effort or a lot of stress on an owner and what about the effects of burnout when we're in these situations you're trying to manage keeping the business afloat you're trying to make sure that your employees are cared for but you're running yourself into the ground the grief that enters there and the kinds of things that can be helpful when you find yourself facing burnout yeah and I, I think burnout is one of the places where we see unrecognized grief we don't recognize that it's grief we if we are the owner of a company and we need to pay the bills and our employees then we're working way too many hours and not taking care of ourselves in order to do that and the the underlying grief there may be unrecognized and and, and that may be when some of those poor decisions happen or um, lack of concentration which can lead to poor decisions so I I think those are all really good good things to think about the other thing that I was thinking about when you were talking Dave is that as as an entrepreneur of a small company um, who meets with clients or customers those clients or customers may or may not be dealing with grief. Now, in, in our case, all of our clients are in, uh, dealing with grief <laughs> because that's the nature of our business. However, how, how do we become more sensitive to the fact that our, our clients may also be experiencing grief? Well, I think the real gift of professionalism is that it, it's a daily opportunity to practice being detached and separating yourself, separating your personal life from your work life to some degree, but also recognizing that you'll never be able to fully separate your work from your personal life. And I think to answer your question, Nancy, it's really an art to to really deciding how to interact with those situations from moment to moment because it depends on the nature of the business, depends on who the customer is, it depends on your relationship to the customer. But the short answer is I think that we want to do, as professionals, we have some responsibility to get our needs met outside of work and to not expect our customers or our bosses or our coworkers to meet our emotional needs. We have to accept the responsibility ultimately to, to get the resources to get our needs met. And at the same time, we can give ourselves the grace to realize we're never going to do so perfectly. And sometimes we're not going to know how to get those needs met. We're not going to necessarily have, know how to interact with unfamiliar situations. And, and so I think if it begins with honesty coupled with professionalism, I might meet a customer and, and, and I, might, I might realize that they're, they're under stress, I'm under stress, and sometimes there can be just those little moments of relatedness where I can say, you know, hey, I, I see you're going through a lot of stuff, I'm dealing through, going through a lot of stuff too, but hey, we'll, we're going to figure this out. 
and I, I think everybody can relate at the level of humanity, regardless of who's the client, who's the vendor, or what position anyone's in in a corporate hierarchy. I, I think that's that's the key to really bring all this home is to just hey, remember at the end of the day, it's humans interacting with humans. Yeah, I think that's um, a great thing to remember and a great uh, way to end our conversation t- today. How can our listeners get in touch with you? The best place to find me is my website online. It is dave-baldwin.com. Don't forget the hyphen or you won't find me, dave-baldwin.com. Thanks, Dave. And um, I hope people reach out to you because I know you and I are going to be doing a, a webinar soon on this same topic. So people will be able to learn more as we go a little bit deeper into this topic. I was going to say thank you again for having me on, and I'm looking forward to that webinar also. You're very welcome. Thank you for being here. It was a, a, a very insightful conversation. Today we talked about how grief can impact our business life, whether we work in a corporate setting or our own business, and how that may impact our personal lives as well. Ask yourself if you resonated with anything we discussed, and if so, take the steps necessary to get the help that you need. And as far as our inspiration, inspirational message today, I think uh, this kind of sums it up. It's a quote from Arianna Huffington. Don't just climb the ladder of success. A ladder that, after all, leads to higher and higher levels of stress and burnout. But chart a new path to success, remaking it in a way that includes not just the conventional metrics of money and power, but the third metric that includes well-being, wisdom, wonder, and giving, so that the goal is not to just succeed, but to thrive. You've been listening to Monday Morning Conversations with Nancy and Dan. Thank you for listening. Through our own journey, we know that it's possible to find meaning, purpose, and joy again after a loss. Join us each week as we share useful information to help you develop the skills necessary to meet grief when it enters your life and to show you the importance of having difficult conversations, even when you don't know how to start them. If you're looking for more information, you can find us at our website, beingwithgrief.com.